0: Now today, we are here in First Corinthians 3, verses 8 and 9, and what we want to emphasize is that God uses everyone that he calls to himself, and that we do not know, as I mentioned last week, who's doing a better job, who's more important, and so on, but we have callings to be part of God's field, God's building, God's temple. There's a number of different metaphors. So today we're covering verses 3, it's chapter 3 verses 8 through 9 and we'll go to the next slide and I'll read the text and pray and we'll go ahead and go through this text. Here's what it says. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. The context is about Paul and Apollos. And the correction is about the idea that I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, so I follow Peter that came up earlier in 1 Corinthians. The point we'll get to here is that be part of the family of God, be part of the people of God, is a great blessing in its own self. Let's pray as we begin. Dear Lord, thank you for giving us the opportunity to study together, to open your word, to preach the gospel, to care for one another, and Lord, we need wisdom to always know what you've said in your word and believe what you've said and Be sober-minded concerning our own status vis-a-vis others that you've saved. Help us understand this and apply it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in review, last week, I mentioned a term. While we're on the slide, I have highlighted in red there, each. The word in the Greek is ekastos. And now I have the ability through the Logo software to search how often that's used in First Corinthians or Paul's epistles or whatever. It's an important term, especially in light of the current trends in our culture, where we live here in America, and also I think in the whole world. And that trend has to do with, there's just amorphous group, and if you're part of that, you're somehow evolving along with the nature into some deity or some good place without future judgment and last week i made the point and i believe this is very clear in first corinthians that each person is known by god and each christian knows god has the gift of eternal life if indeed you are the lord's and that in general individuals matter There isn't this group that you get absorbed into, but individuals matter, both in living and ultimately in facing judgment. So we'll point out that again. So let me make a statement before we go to the next slide. Here, the group is not humanity in general, but those who are born of God through God's work of grace. Paul addresses those in Corinth, but this would be true in any local fellowship. So he's addressing the schisms in Corinth, but any people gathering who know Jesus Christ, individuals matter. It isn't enough that I'm in some group that sort of is Christian, and if you are born of God, we don't have the ability to know Who's important and who's not. We need one another. God will determine these things. So let's break down verses eight and nine and bring out the meaning and study it together. And just for your information to save you some time, we're eventually going to get to 2 Corinthians 5, and there's a lot of verses in there. So at some point, stick a bookmark in 2 Corinthians 5 as you have your Bible. Now, Paul and Apollos, two laborers in God's field. He who plants and he who waters are one. Now, this refers back to the status that Paul discussed, servants, diakonoi, where we get our word deacon. It doesn't mean that Paul was a deacon and Apollos was a deacon. That's not what's on the table right here. Paul was an apostle. That'll come up first Corinthians 15 and elsewhere. Apollos spoke, he preached. So that's not the point. Whatever role they have doesn't warrant somebody saying, "I'm of Paul, I really don't like Apollo's. or I'm of Peter that came up earlier. This is about our status in the body of Christ as redeemed people who need one another and God saves everyone, and puts them in the body and uses us in different ways as he pleases. We'll get to that later in First Corinthians. So planting and watering here are part of God's purpose to cause growth. The analogy right now is the field. The building will be introduced. Right now we're talking about the field. And so if you're going to grow a crop, you need to plant need to water, this is what God's doing. And the growth, as we saw last week, is from God. I'm not departing from the whole counsel of God by saying this. I don't want to go further than the analogy here, but we'll see more about this. If we really believe that those who gather in the name of Christ, called Christian, are there because of God's work of grace, who've trusted in him and are born of God, then what watering would ever cause growth? In other words, teaching and preaching the word of God must be done everywhere where people gather because that's the means by which we grow. And so self-help seminars, how to have a better life, how to make more money than somebody else who's not a Christian, or whatever may be on the table, are not what causes growth. It's God's word, and God works through preachers, but he is the one that causes growth. I'll make a statement about that. God assigns laborers and gives the growth. Those in the church believed through the preachers, not in the preachers. Through the preachers, not in the preachers. The object of our faith is God. This is why their slogans are ironically fleshly or merely human. And so that's part of this field analogy. They're both servants. Now let's look at the last part of that verse. 1 Corinthians 3, 8b. Excuse me. I'm citing from ESV. And each will receive His wages according to his labor. Now let's really look at that sober-mindedly and not try to go any further than what the text is telling us. The wages there are about what will be rewarded by God in the future at the judgment seat of Christ, not about how much one gets paid. Now, we should certainly take care of everyone who serves, people get wages, but that's not what's here. The point is only God knows how well anyone served in the field that he put us in. So Paul and Apollos are responsible to God. Only God determines how well they served. And it's not about money, but about future reward. And that's the thing that we need to be very clear about. One of the problems is if we take the whole idea of the church, the gospel, evangelism, redemption, church growth, as it's often called, and the role of the church during the church age and turn it into something that's not based on eternal promises and future reward and resurrection from the dead and things like that, but make it all about just now, we will be very misled and dissatisfied. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So many battles about, well, somebody got a better deal than I did, and so this isn't right, and so I better do something about it. That's not what the body of Christ is about. We are about serving whether somebody notices us or not. And God does take care of us, and we do take care of each other. It's about future reward. I'll make a statement about that. There will be more about this when we get to 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15, which we'll do. But this is a future. This reward is future. As we go forward, notice there will be building with different materials, doing a good job or a bad job. That's an analogy It's still future. The Lord determines it later. God is the one who appoints laborers in his field. And only God will determine their roles and the judgment or judge the faithfulness of their service. So God does this each one individually. When we've taught about prayer, think about this. Hebrews 4.16. We have privilege to go to the throne of grace, bring our concerns to Christ, who sits at the right hand of God, he hears us. It, It takes omnipotence to answer prayers, omniscience to hear each one individually, and God's providence to work this all together. We'll never figure it out by being clever. Only God could do this. And God is so Omniscient and loving and caring, that each individual prayer he hears, each one. It's not whether you're in the right group or the wrong group. Assuming we're talking about the body of Christ. If we're outsiders, then we need to come to Christ, and God even can deal with that, and we'll see that later. Let me cite a couple. Scholars, Campa and Rosner, who, th- <laughs> I looked this up, by the way, they cite two others. I happen to have all of them now. When I first started studying First Corinthians, only had Fee, but now his work has sprung into a lot of good fruit from others seeing the irony here. Let me cite Campa and Rosner, who also mentioned Thistleton and Gardner. There, I did my homework. The irony of pay or reward serves primarily they say to intensify the point that paul and apollos are responsible to god their employer for judgments about the success or failure not of the community but their own furthermore assessments of one's own work are pointless and misleading before all the data are open to view And God has pronounced his definitive verdict at the last day, unquote. And I said, amen. We don't have the data. Do you really think that humans, even those who are part of the church, who know Christ, who love Christ and serve Christ, have enough information to accurately judge who's doing the best job in building God's field? We can generally see through fruits what God approves of, what's valuable, what's important. But only God knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. We can think too much about ourselves, and it doesn't take too long to do that. And we might start thinking, oh, I'm horrible. God couldn't possibly use me. I'm such a mess. Or we might think, well, isn't, isn't it great that I showed up? Whether we think it's good or bad, if we look at somebody else, good or bad, we need to know that God has put us in his field, part of his family, and he's at work, and he's using each one, and it's his prerogative to assess the value of the work and how well it's done, and that happens in the future. And so some will say, well, what do I do now? We serve by his grace and God will get us to the right place at the right time. Let's go to verse 9, the first part, 1 Corinthians 3, 9a. For we are God's fellow workers. Paul's still here speaking about him and Apollos. Now, one of the things I want to point out is that there are three descriptions that are using a genitive, which would... Typically, a genitive would be translated of, like of God. But in this case, it's clearly possessive. So they're God's co-workers, and they're doing God's work in God's field and so on. So let me read from the ESV here. For we are God's fellow workers. That means they are God's. They belong to him. It's possessive. Let me cite from the Net Bible, which I think makes it really clear. We are co-workers belonging to God. You are God's field, God's building. So three times it's possessive. God owns the workers, the building, the field, the temple, everything. It's only God's doing that we're in Christ and that we're part of the family of God. Now, in order to make a really big field, some people erase the boundaries and say, We're all God's children. That's not what this is saying. Yes, we all originated from God's creation. All are descended from Adam and Eve, according to the Genesis. But to be part of the family of God, you need to believe in Jesus Christ and trust him alone. And having done that, remember the big context. I'm of Paul, they were saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ. And Paul ironically says, what? Is Christ divided? If you're not of Christ, you're not in the body of Christ. And if you are, then we're all part of the family of God, and we don't want to have schisms based on personalities. You could almost say that modern technology makes that even more probable because in Paul's day, they did not have television preachers. You didn't know that? But the problem isn't technology. The problem is the heart. The problem is the tendency to make invalid comparisons and judgments. If the truth is preached on a broad scale, we need to say praise God for that but the same arena can spread lies and error. Let's go to the last part of that verse. You, again, the Corinthian church, which would apply to any or part of the body of Christ anywhere, but in this case, addressed to the Corinthians, you are God's field, God's building. Now, God's building introduces the next metaphor, and we'll deal with that in a couple of weeks when I preach again. There are three genitives, as I mentioned. By the way, some would wonder why get into some detail like this in a regular sermon. Here's why. I, when I was in Bible college, was faced with two ways of being a fervent Christian. Some said you need to be more pious or more. Powerful, or you need to do this, or you need to do that, or you need to have this experience. And so there was that branch that you could go with. And others said, no, learn the Greek, stay in the scriptures, teach the Bible. They were both there. And in God's providence, but not to my honor, I chose the pietism, meaning trying to be more holy or more something than everybody else. I think God that some teachers said to me, Bob, I see what you're doing. I see what you're trying to do. It's not going to work out. Don't do that. In fact, they told Diane and I, don't go join this group. What did we do? We joined it. But met some great people, some of you here. I don't have regrets about God's providence because that's what's necessary to learn and to grow. And many people really love Christ. And the thing that's most insidious about the Corinthian error is that it's most attractive to people who are Christian. Had I not been converted, still doing, um, hoping, hoping for a career in chemical engineering, I was a junior, I wouldn't have been interested in any of this. Maybe, who knows, would have, could have, but that would have been a bad idea because I wouldn't have my sins forgiven. I'd probably, who knows, it's just supposition. So it's good to serve God. Here is what I'm concerned about. Don't allow people who are saying to you that you're a pathetic Christian, you don't have the right revelations, you don't know how to cast out the demons, you don't know how to break your curses, you don't know how to find a deeper life, you don't know this, you don't know that, And therefore, let us tell you how to do it. Come to our meeting or join our group. I'm hoping that you resist that. Because only God can determine various gifts and who's doing a better job. Let me cite Dr. Gordon Fee. And one of the reasons, by the way, I was willing to read Fee, he had a similar background. He was a Pentecostal. And I thought, well, this doesn't put up the barriers that some, some other person maybe would have considering a group we were in. So let me read what he said as that it was exactly in the 1986 commentary. He says this all too often, those in charge be they clergy boards, vestry sessions or what have you tend to think of the church as theirs. He has quotes there. They pay lip service to a being Christ's church, after all. Then, he says, proceed to operate on the basis of very pagan, secular structures. And regularly speak of my or our church, nor does the church belong to the people, especially those who have attended all their lives, he has quotes, or those who have, quote, supported with great sums of money. As though, he says, that gave them special privileges, the church, Fee wrote, belongs to Christ and all other things, structures, attitudes, decisions, nature of ministry, everything should flow out of that singular realization. Unquote. That was so profound when I read it, it just opened up a whole new course of study. How do we define the church? We're not saying that a church can't have a building. We're not saying that we have no leadership or no organization. That's not what the point is. Once something is established as an institution that's self-perpetuating, and it goes on and on and on. Then, eventually, the great grandchildren of the founders are in charge. And they often decide, well, this isn't right. We need to do things. And the next thing you know, the gospel's gone. They start worrying about things that aren't even important. And we saw in church, read church history, does the Bible know anything about? archbishops. Well, there are none. I don't believe it's a sin to have a building to meet, whoever owns it. It's not a We have to be minimally organized to function. But the value of somebody's service isn't based on how long they've been around or how much money they gave. It's only God's prerogative to determine who labored in his field and did so faithfully, knowing that we all stumble in many ways and we need forgiveness and cleansing and to keep depending on him. So to that end, I'm thankful that God could even allow me to preach to you. Let's go to some implications and applications. We'll have one in Galatians and then most of the rest will be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Those who serve must please God, not man. That's the first one we want to talk about. Number two, the reward for faithful service is future and applies to individuals. Number three, only those who put their faith in Christ alone are part of God's people. The church is not a subset of. Of the world based on something it's only those who know Christ wherever they are throughout history in the world wherever they may be so let's go to Galatians 1 and then I, the rest will be in 2 Corinthians 5 so if you're using a paper Bible uh, I'm very slow in my paper Bible the computer is so much faster but paper one comes to church when i have it some of you may have a small computer get that ready to go to 2 corinthians 5:10 and we'll go from there as we get through the rest of this sermon galatians 1:10 again an epistle of paul paul says this for i am not for am i now seeking the approval of man or of god or am i trying to please man Then he says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let me back up a bit and give you the context. The Galatians were the scene of the onslaught of some works-based ideas that weren't right. And Paul called that a different gospel. And he wrote a very harsh letter to the Galatians to wake him up. No, you can't do this. Let me give you a little bit of the context. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Paul said this. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Which is really not another only there are some who are disturbing you and wanting to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said, this is verse 9 before, so I say again, now if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, is to be accursed. Now, that means the gospel of Jesus Christ. It applies to all. Some have even divided that up. Some say there's one gospel for the Jews, another one for Gentiles. That's not true. As Eric pointed out, some say Paul's epistles aren't valid, just all the rest of it. Some say only Paul's gospel is right, as if it were different. The rest are valid. That's not the point. Peter had been there. I've preached through Galatians, so it's on the website. But the fact is the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about who he is, what he did, why we need him, the person and work of Christ, the uniqueness of Christ, and so on. Let me cite Dr. Thomas Schreiner. We have a second-class contrary-to-fact condition. That sounds technical. It simply means when Paul says, for, I am, for am I now seeking the approval of man or God? That simply means, no, I'm, not trying, I'm only trying to please God, not man. So that's what that means. If Paul, Schreiner said, had desire to please people, but he did not so desire... Then he would never have become Christ's slave. Paul's curse on those who proclaim another gospel, says Schreiner, demonstrates that his aim is to please God rather than people. That should cut to the heart. It does for me. How hard it is to get over the fear of people, of man. How hard it is for everyone other than people that are running Ponzi schemes, they don't seem to care, but they're not in the body of Christ. Some have claimed to be. But how hard it is for those who would serve Christ to not worry about what people think. We need to care for one another. and We need to be concerned not to offend. But in the end, God is the judge. And that can really shut, it's shut me down before where I, I'm wondering, can I do this? But the verse that helps as faithful as he who called you will also bring it to pass. God will get us where we need to go, and uh, he does it. Sometimes in ways we can't imagine, but he does it. I want to make a statement before we go further here. The gospel of Christ crucified will never please fallen man because it offends Jews and Gentiles, which means everybody. That's the point. If you want to please man as a preacher, you will not preach the truth, because it offends everybody. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Gentiles, it's the power of God. It's the wisdom of God. We saw that earlier in Corinthians. And so those who take the gospel, at least some of the words, the cross, Christ, the Bible, whatever terms, or maybe buildings that we come to attribute to being churches, and therefore make them something that God never intended. So Christ crucified doesn't mean you buy the most expensive golden cross money can buy and put it on display. People will put that as part of their bumper. Have you seen the bumper sticker? Coexists and it has all the different religions. Well, as a matter of fact, all the religions do coexist until judgment ultimately comes. But it's not the same as saying the only way to forgiveness of sins, salvation, and eternal life is through believing in Jesus Christ. The unique one, God the Son, the virgin-born Son of God, the very creator who came into our world and lived a sinless life. Yes, until... The future, there is coexistence. We're not involved in any kind of religious war. We're involved in preaching Christ to everyone. Look at the little bumper sticker. God will save people out of each one of those. Somewhere, somehow, out of Buddhism, out of nature worship, out of various different ways of looking at religion. Humans are religious. We'll see that in Acts as we go through it. And they had Artemis in Ephesus. And so Paul, and then he went to Athens. I see you're very religious. People are always religious. But do you know Christ? So if you preach Christ crucified as the only way to God, you just offended everybody other than those who God will redeem. Let's go to now to 2 Corinthians 5.10. I hope your finger isn't sore from waiting all that time. I told you to go there. We're going to get there. Notice each one. Another case here. 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So the judgment seat of Christ is yet future. Only God knows enough details, the motives of the heart, the call his calling, his grace. We see these in the parables of Jesus. Well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of thy master. And the judgment may be totally different than what we think. But it's future and it's individual, future reward. I'll cite a verse. Stay right here, 2 Corinthians, but let me cite another one. Romans 14 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you, again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. If this doesn't humble us, it's designed to. If we tell the world what the world wants to hear, we'll definitely be loved by the world. But friendship with the world is hostility to God meaning the world in its opposition to the purposes revealed in the Bible through Christ and his apostles. I'm going to cite the scholar here, um, uh, Dr. Barnett. I used his commentary when I was teaching through Second Corinthians quite a long time ago. He said, The teaching about the judgment seat before which all believers must come reminds us that we have been saved, says Barnett, Not for a life of aimlessness or indifference, but to live as to the Lord. This doctrine of the universality of the judgment of believers, he says, preserves the moral seriousness of God. It is quite possible, Bardach continues, that some at Corinth held to a super spirituality associated with over-realized eschatology, I want to stop and define that. Some have said, and there's good evidence for this, that the problem with Corinth was over- realized eschatology. We already have whatever we're going to have. The, the, the Lord has already come. There's no future resurrection. This is all there's going to be. That's what that means. There's no actual future beyond what's going on right now. So that's overrealized in times like this is it right now back to his that citation leading to a less than earnest approach to their responsibilities during the present age here's what it means we are in the world but not of the world we serve Christ we evangelize we're good neighbors we pray for civil authorities we carry on we raise our families but we know that we're serving the lord and we're looking forward to his return. There's more to it than what's going on right here. If this is all there was, and our hope was in this life only, and everything has to be heaven on earth now, there's an easier way to understand over-realized eschatology. That is so prevalent in today's world. There are so many who think that this is it. And paradise would just evolve if we quit mucking it up paradise is not evolving the world has fallen we're good stewards but we need to be right with God now while you're still there let's read verses 11 and 12 to Corinthians 5 therefore knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade men. but we are made manifest to God and I hope we are being manifest also in your conscience. Paul is defending, by the way, his own ministry because they had critics in Corinth who said to Paul, we think you're a pathetic apostle. You're not spiritual enough. That's, he has to defend himself. So that's verse 12 will bring that up. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you, an occasion to be proud of us so we will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Now the word take pride is literally in the Greek boast. So they're boasting in this preacher, that preacher, sometimes false apostles, false teachers, boast, boast, boast. And so Paul is saying you're taking pride in the wrong things. If we are sent by God, if we preach Christ, if Paul really is an apostle and did teach the truth, then their judgments are false. Their judgments are false. And that'll come up. Remember, I cited a verse once. They said, his letters are weighty, but his personal appearance is unimpressive. So they were having the wrong standards. Now let's go to some other verses. Now the next slide has 18 and 19. I'm also going to read 17. Verse 17. I'll read that first and then 18 and 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. The word for creation is and it's Ketissus, and that's a good translation. What does it mean to be a new creation? Do we believe that when the Bible tells us that the serpent tempted and enticed Eve and then Adam, and they rebelled against God, and there was a fall? Meaning, they're separated from paradise, they're separated, and they're alienated from God. They're naked and they know it, they're ashamed, and they're hiding, and the results of the fall go on from there. They were not allowed back in. Is that real? Do we live in a fallen world? Sadly, even that is debated in seminaries. And some say that, like Hegel, Adam fell up. In other words, you have thesis, antithesis. So this is a good step out of the garden. God is in everything. No, Adam fell. He didn't fall up. He fell down away from God. So the fact is that Jesus Christ is the last Adam, the first Adam, Brought sin into the world. And the last Adam, Jesus Christ, came to save us and give us new life so we could be new creations. If you are in Christ, the old has passed away. Not that we aren't in a fallen world, but we're new. This verse was pressed upon us when we became Christians. In 1971, down in Sheldon, Iowa... Um, it was a whole new thing. We went to a church I would never have gone to, and God uses that. It doesn't mean we have to see how eccentric we can get, but it's all new, and it's absolutely new. When you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not of this world. You know him, and you love him. Now let's go to verse 18 and 19. Let me talk about that. And then on the last slide, we're going to see the call to be reconciled to God. Now, the word world here is used in various ways. And it doesn't mean that the world, the entire inhabited world, was reconciled to God when Christ died on the cross. So then why are we begging people to be reconciled? That's the next slide. No, Jesus died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. The world is fallen, it's lost. It's amazing that people deny that. I heard one person say that the reality of sin and the fall is the one um, universal thing that has obvious empirical, empirical data. I'm saying that right. Look all around. Do you think the world is evolving into something better or that there are still signs of the fall? Do thistles grow when you are sitting there waiting, hoping that tomato would just come up? Or do you have to pull a thistle's a tomato? If you do nothing, if you do nothing, just don't do a thing. Here's a little plot of land. Four acres. There it is. Just let it sit. Do you think it'll turn into a beautiful garden with food you can eat? If you do, somebody somewhere has something to sell you. Bad idea. We saw that recently in a spot. uh, Somebody put a sign up that said, prairie restoration. What it meant, we're not going to mow anymore and then all these Cotton, whatever it grows. We found that out in the farm. If you don't do anything, if you don't cultivate, if you don't plant, if you don't water, if you don't pull out the weeds, you starve because the world's fallen. But can you think of this? There are many people who believe that this entire cosmos came into being out of some cosmic bang and it's getting ever more orderly and evolving into some glorious state. And the only problem is that there's humans, and they keep mocking it up. And we're waiting. It's going to be here. And literally, a couple of myself and another brother went to a conference of some people who teach, God is in everything, moral and spiritual evolution, no future judgment. And that's what they believe. And, that's, and we ask them, yes, we believe that. But it's not true. There's no evidence for that. Have you ever seen order come out of disorder without any effort on anybody's part? Well, my wife noticed disorder that doesn't change where I work. And it gets a little better if I put some effort into it. However, anyone who owns anything realizes it takes work just to stay even. You do nothing, dust, decay, entropy. So what is it to be reconciled to God? If that's true, if there was a fall, if there is coming judgment, if this emergence into some future paradise, if we just get with the plan, deny all the categories, quit saying things like Jesus Christ died for sins once for all. Just let it all happen. If that's all a big lie, then we are headed for judgment. We are in trouble. We're not right with God. We need to be saved. We need to be redeemed. And he's committed to the apostles, Paul and the others, and those who would be from then on, not new apostles, but people who preach. We have a word of reconciliation. What is it? Here's our last slide. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, Paul says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Let me stop right there. Does that sound like the teaching of someone who thinks that God is in everything and evolving, and if we quit mucking it up, we'll end up with paradise? No. The fall was real. Sin and alienation from God is real. Being lost is real. The only way we can be redeemed is through God bringing Reconciliation. So the ministry of Paul and the others and all who are sent is this. We are putting forth this message. Be reconciled to God. How can you be reconciled to God? Let's look at the rest of this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. I will share more about the gospel, but I want to also make a little warning. This passage has been abused by some to deny imputed righteousness, substitutionary atonement, and so on. Jesus remains, remained sinless. If you want to jot this out, Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we were, yet without sin. Sin is the state of all those alienated from God. That's why we need reconciliation. In Adam, all die. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. So don't believe somebody said, Well, Jesus lost his divinity, became an ordinary sinner, went into hell, fought with the devil, and as a mere man, had to beat him up so he could get out of there and come, and now we can learn how to fumble, the bu- fumble it back again, as some say. No, no, no. The reconciliation is necessary. Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of human beings, men. Jesus, the sinless one, the creator, God the son, took on humanity without losing divinity and died for sins that we can be reconciled to God. Dr. Garland says, we do not simply have righteousness from God. We are the righteousness of God as a result of being in Christ. We are given his righteousness only as we are in him, and we'll be raised like him only if we live in him. We'll see that when we get to 1 Corinthians 15. What about you? If you're hearing this, wherever you may be, the strange versions of things that are called Christian are ubiquitous, wherever you go. Some say the Christ spirit. Some say the Christ consciousness. Some they say Christ is part of the whole universe, and so on. No, Christ is uniquely the second person of the Trinity, the virgin-born son of God, literally lived a sinless life, predicted in the Old Testament. He died for sins. He shed his blood. He's the only one in human history to predict his own death, burial, and resurrection and pull it off. He was raised on the third day. He appeared to many witnesses. He, He bodily ascended to heaven and he's coming again and there will be rewards and judgment. To be reconciled with God is to believe the truth. Turn from serving the religions of the world, self, nature, whatever, Christ consciousness or just being whatever, pragmatist, atheist, agnostic. People are a lot of things. But believe in the Lord Jesus Christ turn to him repent and believe the gospel and biblical Christianity is not saying do all these good things it's saying Christ did it are you trusting yourself or are you trusting him and so Paul is saying be reconciled to God and he spoke with the authority of Christ who appointed him as Apostle And we say, be reconciled to God. And that can be done, not through religion, but through Jesus Christ, the sinless Savior. So today, believe on him, trust in him, and God will forgive your sins and make you a new creature. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord. And I pray that some will be smitten by the work that you've done and convicted as I was over 50 years ago and know that these things are true and turn to you. Lord, I pray that many will be reconciled to you. And for those of us who know you, may we be sober-minded and realize that we need you, we need one another, and that you'll give us the grace to serve humbly, faithfully, As you enable and call, and help us continue to learn together as we go through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.